I am New York City-based psychotherapist Nikita Banks, a licensed clinical social worker, and I am your host of the Black Therapist Podcast, formerly Black in Therapy. The Black Therapist Podcast is a place where we will discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. You can listen to our show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can follow us on Instagram, the Black Therapist Podcast, or you can hit us up on our website and sign up for our mailing list at blacktherapistpodcast.com. Also, on our website, you can find the links to our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. You can also email us show suggestions, general feedback, and any ideas that you have for, I don't know, guests at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. So if you're a longtime listener, you realize that recently there has been a branding change or a name change from Black in Therapy to the Black Therapist Podcast. And so today in in the show, we wanted to talk to somebody who knows a little bit about marketing and can explore the reasons why I changed the name. Now, number one, a lot of the people who were coming to me for counseling, or a lot of people who do come to me for therapy, they're looking for a Black therapist. And so it just makes sense for me to change the name from Black in Therapy to um, Black Therapist Podcast. And when I started to do the show, initially my goal was to basically talk about my experience as both a practitioner, but as as someone who's actually gone to therapy. And now that I'm in private practice a year into the show, and I'm really starting to think of how best to market and represent my business and my brand, I thought that it was now time to change the name of the show as well as uh originally I had two names for the show and I was just kind of like you know thinking kicking around the idea of doing a show and uh, I came up with Black in Therapy but I also came up with Black Therapist Podcast and what I was told because I asked for opinions don't always ask for opinions but what I was told is that I didn't want to limit myself to being a black therapist but fortunate for me um, in my market it kind of allowed me to have like a niche or a niche in order to uh, see clients and they're really looking for culturally competent therapists who's a woman of color in the community and so it just made more than enough sense especially after going to a training at Google and learning uh, about search words and better ways to uh, allow people to use Google searches to find my business that hello they should find the black therapist podcast and the black therapist in their community if that's what they're searching for and so today's show, we speak with a master marketer and a psychotherapist and author extraordinaire, Kim Knight. What makes Miss Knight uh, so unique to talk about this, this topic, amongst other things that we're going to talk about today, is that she actually has a training program where she works with psychotherapists of color primarily, but all people. She helps them properly learn specific skills on how to market their private practice, and so we thought that she would be a great person to talk to around this time and change and development of the newly branded Black Therapist Podcast. Now today, we're going to do things a little bit
bit differently. Um, like I told you guys, we talked about why I changed the name from Black in Therapy to Black Therapist Podcast. And so today we have a guest. I told you we'd have guests. But um, our guest today is Kim Knight. And she's a mental health counselor in Valley Stream, New York. But actually, you have more than one practice, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So tell the people about yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, first, thanks for having me on, Nikita. I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to you about this important topic. Um, And as far as my practice is concerned, like you said, my name is Kim Knight, licensed mental health counselor. And I do have two private practice locations, one in Nassau County in Valley Stream and the other is in Suffolk County in East Islip, New York. And I've been in practice for going on three years and that's school time. Okay. And so what is, what is the difference in population in each uh, practice that you have, or is it pretty the same? Well, um, it is pretty much the same, I would say, although in East Islip, um, it's a little bit more diverse in terms of who I see, but I'm also sharing space, not sharing space, but I, I rent space with a group. So it's still my individual practice, but the group is actually the one that does the marketing and receives the inquiries for clients. So so it's not just me that's out there. It's an entire group of us, and we're a diverse group of client, of, of practitioners. So the calls that come in come in from all different um, backgrounds and all different types of clients. Um, where I am in Valley Stream, it's just I'm in a practice with others, but it's still just my practice, and I'm the one that's promoting myself. So it's a little bit different in terms of the marketing and who I'm speaking to or who comes to find me and how in which they come to me. Okay. And so you and I became acquainted because we were in a group, I think Black Therapist Rocks on Facebook. Yep, that's correct. Yep, okay. That's where we met. And I want to say I reached out to you because you were like one of the only therapists in the group who was in New York City, too. I remember reaching out to you when I was like, yikes, I'm going into private practice. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, I remember. And, um, yep, you were just getting started, and we connected through the group, and we were able to, you know, discuss some of the challenges, some of what to expect when you go into private practice. And, I mean, since then, you, you've launched, and I see your posts, and I see how great you're doing being in practice now. So I think it's a wonderful thing that we were able to connect. Yeah, but I also appreciate the fact that, you know, you and some of the other therapists that I know who are women of color or people of color have actually kind of poured into my career and um, reaching out to you, I knew that you would at least give me an answer to, to my questions. Because <laughs> sometimes when you reach out to some colleagues, they really seem to look at you as competition, although we're not in competition with one another. And so um, I, I never felt that, you know, in dealing with you. And I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. And I hope that Nobody that interacts with me in terms of colleagues would ever feel that way because there is enough to go around. There are lots of people that need us. We just have to know how to find them and how to speak to them and attract them. And by all means, all of our practices can be thriving. And what I wanted to ask you specifically about, and, and what, the reason that I wanted to have you on this show was because I changed my name of the podcast. And the reason that I did that was after, you know, going to Google and sitting in on a meeting and, and actually, you know, speaking to my clients and, and figuring out that they were looking for 
a black therapist. And now that I have this podcast, I could kind of use the podcast as a funnel into my business. I needed to rebrand myself in a way that spoke to who my clients were looking for. But I know that you have a program specifically targeting therapists and helping them build their own brand and build their own practice. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Sure, absolutely. Basically, myself and a colleague, Lisa Savage Phillips, who's actually out of Delaware, we connected online through the same group, Black Therapist Rock, and we really had a strong connection and have been able to vibe off each other to try to come up with ways to support Black therapists. She has a huge school-based mental health practice in Delaware. I mean, she has over 100 schools that she services and over 30 therapists, so she's been very successful in terms of building a practice, turning it into a group practice and branding herself. And she actually had a um, training program that she ran about six months ago. So we came together and we decided to repackage it and rebrand it. And now we've just launched um, the registration process for the upcoming series, which will be the online training, but specifically for clinicians of color. And we felt that there was definitely a need for us to be able to support one another as well as be trained in how to be effective as an entrepreneur and having a private practice and being able to do it in a safe space. I think over the last six months, there's been some real interesting conversations that have gone on in other groups, and uh, I think a lot has been uncovered in terms of some underlying beliefs that others have and how they associate with us, deal with us, and think about us. And when I say us, I mean clinicians of color. Mm -hmm. So we felt that this was a need that could be met where we could create our own training program and be able to support clinicians of color in a way that allows them to learn and grow in a safe space. And um, so far, um, so good with it. Um, this will be our first time running it, but the hope is that it will continue and really be able to serve. Okay. And so now I know that you, you have uh, your own group um, because I'm in your other group and the name of that group is what specifically? Clinicians of Color and Private Practice. Okay. And I'm, I referenced that group and I, I laughed when you talked about kind of the way the others feel about us because in my last show or one of my last shows I discussed um, some things that happened both in that group and in the Black Darkest Rock group and so um yeah, there are some interesting opinions that our colleagues have about who we are and what we do and our worth and um, or lack thereof in the community. And I think that it's very it's sad. It's, and it, it's kind of making things harder for us to be able to fellowship um, as professionals like we should be doing. Totally agree. I think that while it was surprising, at least for me, it was surprising because you would think in this type of field that there are certain things that are just expected of us in terms of tolerance, in terms of understanding, in terms of acceptance. But, you know, those underlying beliefs, those implicit biases are real and they infect our industry as well. And I think that that has really come to light for a lot of us in some of these Facebook groups. 
where we wouldn't have expected um, things like that to be to happen. And um, for some, it's been very. For some, I would even label it. For, there, there have been a couple of people that have really been attacked and been ostracized and kicked out of groups. And just, you know, the level of, of misunderstanding and disrespect has really been something to witness. So, like like I stated, I think that this is a great opportunity for clinicians of color to find a space where they can grow their practices and not have to worry about those biases that sometimes get in the way of us achieving. Yeah. And I think it's, it's necessary for us to be able to kind of be in safe spaces where we can just kind of decompress and say what we need to say and not have to worry about how it's going to land and, and what others are going to take away from what we say. And I think that because of just the political climate right now and just the time that we're in where race is just so in your face, people are just kind of emboldened to say whatever it is that they want to say. And um, I don't even think that they take into account the, the privilege that they have as well as their role as um, the, the, the powerful position that we play as therapists because I talked about it previously like we can we have the power to take away someone's freedom like we, we have the power to take away people's children and so that's something that impacts systems it impacts families and so if we're not culturally competent um it's an issue and I think that you know also for us not having safe spaces where we can kind of talk about these things and we're always inundated with others in our space it makes it even harder for us to even get through what we're feeling about what's happening and and those feelings too if they're not dealt with they can be dangerous as well in this work yes and you know what Nikita it just gets exhausting after a while Mm -hmm. you know to have to explain and to have to help people to understand Damn, it's just after a while you just get tired and you say, you know, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to be the one to have to explain why I feel the way I feel or why my experience is what it was? It just after a while you just get tired of it. So we need those spaces, and I'm so glad that um, people like we have the Black Therapist Rock Group, and there have been several other groups. I know Joy Harden's group has been really good and supportive, and you don't even realize how much of an effect it has had on you until you enter into a safe space mm-hmm. and then you can really let go and know that people are going to understand and you don't have to go above and beyond to make them understand it makes a huge difference but you know what it's not our job to make them understand I mean from from what I what I studied and what I know about um, I'll just have to say white people their ignorance is what allows them to move through life without taking responsibility for for what has been done on a communal level and we are not allowed to be individuals whenever something happens like you know the terrorist attacked or if a, a black person commits a crime whenever some a person of color does something we are seen as one of them we always judged as a collective and as a group but we're not allowed to just feign ignorance and then separate ourselves from everything that everybody else has done in our ancestors and our history. We all become lumped into the same, you know, group. And so their ignorance, and this is not something that I'm saying that without, I don't have any cultural background or any reference in, like, this is stuff that I've studied. Their ignorance allows them to kind of distance themselves from it. 
and say that that's them. I'm, I'm, I'm me and I'm only responsible for me. And so it, it, it becomes problematic. And how can you fight, you know, 400 years of a thought process? It's really difficult to do in one conversation. Very difficult. Very difficult. And you're right. It, it isn't our, our job to explain. But even in the conversations that we have, our intention isn't necessarily to explain, but sometimes when we got a check fault, that's kind of a form of, you know, that becomes exhausting too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? That makes absolutely no sense. And then when you break it down to them, I mean, it still often goes over their head because cognitive dissonance, as we know, is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And that can be a huge challenge. So sometimes you end up just having to walk away or just saying, you know what, I'm going to let them be who they are in their space, in their world, and I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. And I don't know if that's helpful either. So what is the answer? I don't know. Um, But I do know that we have to be clear on what our needs are. And true safe spaces should be a requirement for us when it comes to us being professionals in the field of serving others. It has to be. I mean, I think I have the answer. <laughs> but it's not it's, it's it's not one that I think is going to be easily enforceable and the answer is kind of what I had in my previous um work site which is where if the white people got out of line when it came to race the white people checked them mm-hmm. and so having them be introspective um individually and having them be introspective and actually doing the work continuously as a group and having them be the enforcers of safe spaces for people of color to kind of explain their situation and then having them check them when something is is said and done that's that's inappropriate or doesn't show um, introspection or highlights their bias and even racism. Yeah, and definitely their privilege. That I think that, that to me is what helps because when we do it, we're pushing back and they, look, it's, they, they are immediately defensive. When they do it, it's a different tone and they're thought differently and they think differently. And so I know that that works. I know that having, you know, ugh, this sounds horrible saying good white people for like Oprah's, mm-hmm. Oprah's grandmother told her, when you get older, I hope you can find you some good white people. <laughs> but it sounds like that, like having people who are who are not people of color who are white or Hispanic or identify, you know, with white or dominant culture and having them do the work and actually sympathizing and empathizing and being introspective and being committed to social equality, social equity and social justice. I think that that is the work. That's the answer to me, because we we definitely can't do that part of it by ourselves. No, definitely not. I guess the scary part is what about the that are in private practice that don't really interact with their their own colleagues of their own um, background and persuasion. I think those are the ones that sometimes um, get to kind of live in their own bubble and in their own world. And, you know, it becomes scary because they're also seeing clients that need them to be more culturally competent. And if they're not willing to do it on their own or aren't in a place where they can be checked on it, I think that, too, becomes problematic as well. Definitely. So, um, you know, but you know what? The journey continues. The good fight goes on. 
And in the meantime, we continue to do the good work that we do for those that we're serving. Okay. So a little bit more about your program. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm starting in private practice and I was looking to uh, build my practice, what are some key things that you think that we should be focusing on? Okay. So in the program itself, we cover a tremendous amount of topics. And But first and foremost, for those that are just starting out, think that mindset is one of the things that needs to be understood prior to going into practice because when you're starting a practice, you are starting a business. You're becoming an entrepreneur in some respect. So you want to be able to understand the mindset of an entrepreneur because it's very different than the mindset of an employee. So if you're coming from, say, an agency background or some type of social services job where you've been, you know, under the microscope or under the offices of an organization, their mission, their goals, a supervisor, monitoring what you do, evaluating what you do, if they're determining your salary, they determine your days off, you know, that, you know, you fall into that type of situation and a certain mindset starts to set in. And there's certain things you don't have to worry about. You know what you're going to make every other week or every month or every week, how you get paid. You know how many days you have off during the year. There's certain things that are built into being an employee. However, when you do become um, a person in private practice, those things are not necessarily, are not built in. Those are things that you have to create for yourself. And for some, that seems like a lot. And honestly, you know, private practice isn't going to be for everybody. What I am saying is that you do have to take on a different type of mindset, though, if you choose to go into private practice. And one of them is understanding that you are going to be accountable to yourself. So you're not going to have somebody evaluating you every year or every 90 days or every six months to let you know how well you're doing. You're going to have to be the one to determine how well you're doing and where you need to improve and what you need to do in order to make your practice grow and be better. Um, You're going to be the one to decide how often you work, how many days you're able to take off, how much money you want to make, and depending on how much you want to make, you are the one that's going to design the plan to get there. In private practice for therapists, you get to decide what type of clients you want to see. So you are the decision maker, and it is a responsibility. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it boils down to what your values are. For me, having that type of control and having that type of decision-making was important and was one of my core values. And I needed the autonomy and I needed the freedom to be able to create my own world in terms and my own career path and how I was going to build this business. So it really boils down to what your core values are. So for me... Um, I'm still trying to figure out if I love private practice or not. Like, I, I like it some days, but just kind of having all of that responsibility, it is a lot. Um, and what I did like about it and what I liked about even thinking about doing it was having the autonomy, as you stated, to pick the clients that I worked with. Um, my client, my therapist, when I went to him, he's in private practice, but this was like seven, eight years. First time I went, he told me I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen to your issues. And I don't every, not everybody gets the benefit of my therapy, <laughs> my therapy. Like he just told me, you know, um, and he said, if I listen to your issues and I like you and I decide that I, I can help you, then I'll work with you. But if that's not the case, and if that's not what I feel, then I'm going to refer you out. 
And I was like, oh, you know, I, I never even thought that he wouldn't work with me. I never even thought that he would even kind of consider um, not liking me and deciding that he didn't want my insurance money because that's the way a lot of people look at us as if we're just a check. But um, I had a, a lot of respect for how he did business. And as I started to work in systems and as I started to work for different agencies and I didn't have any autonomy in the clients that I worked with and I didn't get to choose who I got, um, for me that became very problematic. I can understand that. And it was interesting because in private practice, every therapist has their own way of working with clients and how they approach clients or how they start clients off. And I think that that was a very strong way to start off with clients, which is very effective because he's really setting the stage out the gate in terms of what the expectation is and what the hope is and that there's a possibility that we might not be a good fit. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the good things about chiropractic because you have that option. You're able to say, you know what, I think you could be better served someplace else and here are some options for you versus it kind of being forced upon you. So, but like anything else, you know, Nikita, there's a good and a bad to everything. You know, private practice is not easy. It's not something that's going to come to you. You have to really be in a space where you are prepared to put in the work and build it. Yeah. And, you know, for some, it's a lot. I mean, from it's a lot. I'm not going to lie. It is a lot. But it, for me, it's worth it. And I think, again, that boils down to the values and what things are worth to you. And for me, it's worth it. For others, being in full-time someplace and having a part-time power practice is a perfect formula for, for them. Um, and for me, it worked for a while. But then I needed to decide, make a decision for myself, and I just chose to go for it and do it full-time. So it's, it's a personal choice, but you just have to know that whatever choice you're making, that there's going to be um, stuff that comes with it that you have to be prepared for. Okay. And so what are some implementable strategies that someone can actually utilize today if they are, are launching their private practice or they're in their private practice and they're not getting the numbers that they want? Okay, so I think that niching or niching or however you want to pronounce it, tomato, tomato. <laughs> I don't know. Or specializing, I think, can really help a practice to grow. And sometimes it doesn't sound like that would work because you think that if I remain general and I help everybody or as many people as I can, then that gives me an opportunity to have more clients. But in actuality, niching or niching allows you to focus your services and allows you to really speak to a specific type of person. And when you're able to do that, then people are start looking for you because yeah. you're the one that can absolutely help them with their specific problem. So I'm sorry. And, and I really feel ahead, like no. I really feel like that strategy helps you find your perfect client and it helps your perfect client find you. I feel like when you my my ideal client ended up finding me because originally I was gonna work with couples. You couldn't tell me nothing. That's because people people don't know my background, but I actually became a certified life coach first before I came a therapist. Okay. Like many things in my life, I've done things backwards. <laughs> so I became a life coach first, and then I went back to school to become a therapist. And when I became a coach, my intention was to work with couples. I said, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to work with couples. I want to, you know, because I've been married for a long time. I had so much to offer, blah, blah, blah. 
I got my first set of couples, and I tell you, I was traumatized. I said, no way. I cannot do couples work. This cannot be my thing. I mean, I need, I, I, I got to do something else. And I kind of opened myself up and allowed myself to see various types of clients. And as it turns out, I still like to do relationships, but primarily with women and their relationships. Okay. And learning how to create healthy relationships in their life and making better choices in their relationships. So, but that niche found me through me allowing myself to open up and see various types of clients. So being general is okay in the beginning, but you really do want to be mindful and you want to be aware and recognize some patterns of types of clients that are coming to you and the ones you really enjoy working with and then try your best to kind of narrow it down and begin to niche. Yeah. And and I started out as a relationship blogger. Um, as a journalist and then as a relationship relationship blogger. And I also thought that I would do a lot more couples work than um, than I now know that I enjoy because I don't really enjoy couples work as much. It's a lot of work. And so I too, I too kind of narrowed my focus on um, women and girls. And I have a program called Respect is Love. And we kind of teach healthy in, engagement um, for women and girls. And because I feel like it all really does start with us. And um, yeah, but no, I, I I too didn't like couples work that much. I do it. I, I like when I do it, but I let my couples know. And I'm very honest about it. My goal isn't to keep you guys together because I don't know if you have sustainability. I don't know if you guys are even compatible. My goal is happiness. And if happiness ends with you being together, then you know, I'm all for that. But if it ends with you deciding that you want to be happier apart, then I'm for that too. Um, and I think that a lot of couples kind of don't, I don't know if they don't like that approach, but it's to me is as a real, as real as I, I can get, because I think that people come to us with the unrealistic expectation, especially when we do couples work and it becomes very taxing. Oh, very draining. It can be, especially because a lot of times couples wait until they're in crisis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not just crisis, like terrible crisis. Yeah, they can't hear each other, they can't see each other, they they, yeah. they one person usually has a foot out the door, and we're literally trying to, like, revive them on life support, and it becomes very, very difficult, and it is draining. It is very draining. Yeah. And I think your approach is right. You have to let couples know right out the gate that this isn't going to necessarily be about you staying together. It's about figuring out what it is that you want to do at the end of this process, and it may look very different than what it is today it may mean you're together and it may mean you're apart but at the end of the day like you said it's about what do I need in order to be happy okay so now that we are on relationships tell them about your book oh thank you okay so I wrote my first self-published book it's called relationship recipes and this book actually took eight years to make it to the publishing phase. Why? Because when I originally, like I said, started out as a life coach, one of the projects or one of the final projects was to come up with a presentation around the um, the specialization or the group that you wanted to work with. And at that time, like I said, I wanted to do couples. And I came up with this PowerPoint presentation 
and I did it in a cookbook format, and it was all about what to do in order to have a healthy relationship. So it was basically a tips and strategies type of PowerPoint. It was short. It was sweet. But at the end of the presentation, somebody said, you know what? This would be a really good book to put together. And I kind of blew it off. I said, you know, yeah, whatever. And then about three or four years later, when I went back to school to become a therapist and, again, thought that I wanted to work with couples, I started the process of writing the book. And I actually wrote it. I put it together. And I had it edited, and I sat on it because of my issue with not really wanting couples to be... I didn't want to be niched or be um, identified as a couples therapist. That was, like, the biggest thing I didn't want to happen. But I didn't want the book to go to waste. I said, well, this, I think, is a good book, and I think it can help people. So how can I put it out there in a way that I don't necessarily get put into the category of couples therapist? So I changed the name. The original name was a couple cookbook and I changed the name to relationship recipe so that because my focus is relationship really but like I said primarily with women and their relationships so I was able to still create the book bring it to market publish it market it and now it's out there for couples or it can be it can be for individuals who are looking for a relationship or or an individual can buy it and use it in their relationship there are many different ways it's a great book for premarital um, counseling or premarital situations where people are engaged. And it basically, again, outlines. It's not rocket science. It's not a heavy read. It's very simple. But I think that part of the reason why 50% of relationships and marriages don't work is because we forget to do those little things consistently. Mm-hmm. And this book kind of reminds you how and what to do and then at the end of each chapter there are exercises for you to do with your partner or with the person that you're in a relationship with to kind of help enrich the relationship and really build in those simple things that you need to do in order to keep it going and keep it healthy okay so Relationship Recipes, it's available on Amazon, and I would love for people to give me feedback on it and to review it and let me know what you think, because I think that it can be very helpful. Okay. So how can our listeners contact you? So if people would like to reach out to me, they can email me at Counseling. K is in Kim. K-N-I-G-H-T counseling at gmail.com and that would be the best way and if they would like to reach out to me on Facebook, the name of my Facebook group is Truth Be Told Counseling and you can actually, it's not even a group it's a page, you can go onto the page and you can message me there as well. Okay, and like it while you're there um, and, Absolutely. and if you're a clinician of color and you're looking to join a part of the, um, to join one of well, your group, what would they, where would they find you? Okay, so right now they could start the process by joining or requesting to join Clinicians of Color in Private Practice. That's mm-hmm. the name of the Facebook group. They can come in there. There's a couple of questions they need to answer with regards to their profession and what they would like to see happen in private practice. 
once you're approved, all the information is in there to join the University of Private Practice Training Program. Okay. Okay. So thank you for agreeing to do this show today. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Nikita. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much. Once again, we want to thank psychotherapist and author Kim Knight of Truth Be Told Counseling of Valley Stream, New York, for coming on to our show. And thank you guys for listening. You've listened to another episode of the Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Nikita Banks, licensed clinical social worker. And this is Black Therapist Podcast, formerly Black in Therapy. If you are looking for any information, any resources about today's show, or if you just want to drop a line and say, hey, and subscribe to our mailing list, you can do so at our website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. You can send us emails at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please like, comment, share, and subscribe because we want the show to grow as organically as we possibly can. And we cannot do that without you. Thank you for listening. Be well. Thank you.